Friday night, December 5th at 10 p.m., the Frank Zappa Jam Session on the History of Funk. On 94.1 KPFA. And you're tuned to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is a few seconds past 3 p.m. Stay tuned now for Cover to Cover. Good afternoon, and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Today we bring you the voices of two strong Native American women, Loretta Barrett Oden and Winona LaDuke. Both of these women remind us of the need to restore, protect, and enjoy the Native riches of this land. Stay tuned. We start with Native American chef and food historian Loretta Barrett Oden, founder of the famed Corn Dance Cages in Santa Fe, Nuevo Mexico. Odin, along with her son, the late chef Clay Odin, opened the first restaurants dedicated to showcasing the amazing bounty of foods indigenous to the Americas. A citizen of the Potawatomi Nation in Oklahoma, she has spent most of her adult years studying, teaching, and adapting recipes to preserve the culinary legacy of her upbringing. Here she is speaking at the Bioneers Conference in 2006. The question I most frequently hear uh, in my work is just what is Native American food? You know, Columbus, after months at sea, finally bumped into an island. Assuming he'd reached the Indies, he called the inhabitants Indians. And the golden grain that they gave him, corn. A generic European term for all types of cereal grains. Hey, wrong on all counts, Chris. Not the Spice Islands, not Indians, not corn. The grain given by Columbus by the Tiano people was maize. The word meant bread of life or grain of the gods. And throughout the Americas, entire cultures revolved around its propagation. Archaeologists believe maize was first cultivated by pre-Incan people in Peru, where ancient design motifs of stalks, ears, and tassels are found. From the terrace gardens high in the Andes, cultivation spread northward through Aztec and Mayan jungles to the arid mesas of southwest pueblos. From fertile mid-Atlantic Cherokee River valleys to the forests of the Iroquois Nation, every tribe had a legend telling how this miraculous food was given to the people. For most, the benefactor was a woman, symbol of Mother Earth, guardian of all that walks or grows upon the land. But maize was only the first gift from an overflowing cornucopia of plenty that Native Americans shared with newcomers from the old world. Potatoes, tomatoes, red and green peppers, chilies, sweet potatoes, sunchokes and sunflower seeds, lima, butter, pinto, kidney, black, scarlet runner, wax, and French string beans. Acorn, crookneck, butternut, yellow, green, and summer squashes, pumpkins, peanuts, pine nuts, ground nuts, hazelnuts, hickory nuts, and pecans, watercress and nasturtiums, pineapples, persimmons, papayas, cassava, tapioca, and avocados, maple sugar, wild rice, sassafras, sea grapes and choke cherries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, elderberries, service berries, huckleberries, and cranberries, cod, salmon, snapper and trout, lobster, buffalo, elk, moose, prairie chickens, turkey, vanilla, and chocolate. 
One wonders what there really was to eat in pre-Columbian days. <laughs> Italy had no tomato sauce. What'd they put on that pasta? The Irish were without potatoes. The Hawaiians, still serenely undiscovered in the South Pacific, had never seen a pineapple. Roast peanuts and popcorn were a thing of far future sports events. East Indian curry lacked the fiery bite of the chili peppers. It was a while before anyone could belly up to the bar and order a sarsaparilla. And only the Native American had ever been able to sink his lucky teeth into a juicy roast turkey drumstick. Be not deceived. The Native American people of these Americas did not simply go out foraging uh, in the wilderness with, you know, and come back with baskets full of delicacies. You know, maize, for instance, um, it's an extremely uncooperative plant. Uh, they were very ingenious in bringing this, this incredible crop from, from its origin of the origins of Teosinte to that wonderful golden and hopefully again the red and the purple, uh, ears of corn that we enjoy today. Each stock demands its own little weed-free plot of ground and, and conscientious care. You know, potatoes didn't begin as big brown veggies ready for baking and slathering with butter and sour cream, but tiny little pea-sized purple tubers in altitudes high and cold enough to make farming one of life's most unpleasant occupations. Tomatoes belong to the poisonous botanical family of deadly nightshade, and it's a sure bet that more than one ancient gourmet bit the dust figuring out which part of the plant to chew on. America's first agriculturists were very adept at growing and genetically manipulating the local plants. By cross-pollination and hybridization, they bred many, many varieties of maize. Modern science, with all of its high-tech wizardry, would be hard-pressed to accomplish the same results. You know, when the Europeans reached this side of the Atlantic, they found carefully tended cornfields and garden plots quite unlike those at home. You know, there they just cast the seed into the wind and it grew in patches uh, wherever the seed fell. Uh, here they found, uh, you know, beautifully spaced corn mounds and they were watered by intricate irrigation systems and the maize spirits were fed with nutrient-rich offerings of fish and guano. What's more, each maize mound was also planted with a few seeds of two other indigenous plants, the beans and the squash. In Native American myth and legend, maize, corn, beans, and squash were the three inseparable sisters. Today we call them the Indian triad, or the three sisters. And know that eaten together, they form a perfect food. Maize provides protein and niacin. Beans and squash add lysine and tryptophan, amino acids necessary for its digestion. The three were always planted together, and as the maize grew straight and tall, the bean vines snaked up the stalks, and the squash plants covered the ground, and their wide leaves held in the moisture and inhibited the growth of pesky weeds. The perfect trio was always eaten together. We owe the original people of these Americas even more than the bounty of their land, sea, and forests that they so generously shared with everyone else. Most of the recipes and cooking styles we think of as American originated at smoky campfires strung out from sea to shining sea. The Native American women were brilliant cooks. They knew more than 40 ways to prepare corn alone, from thickening soups and stews with cornmeal to tamales steamed in corn husks, puddings made from kernels scraped fresh from the cob, and tortillas baked in round earth ovens. 
parched kernels were boiled with wood ashes and transformed to fat white hominy. Dried ground and reconstituted, the hominy became grits. Made into a paste and cooked on any hot surface, hot rocks will do. It was a bread that traveled so well that pioneers called it journey cake, and we now call them Johnny Cakes. You know, people from the Caribbean islands smoked meat on wooden grills and called it barbacoa, barbecue. Northeast coastal dwellers dug holes in the sand, piled in lobster, corn, clams, and steamed them to sweet succulents. Clam bakes? Aztecs heated powdered cocoa beans with vanilla, honey, and water. Hot chocolate. Pueblo women made thick stews of pinto beans and hot peppers. Chili. Mayans added fiery chilies to minced tomatoes. A little salsa. Plains tribes hung racks of buffalo meat in the sun to dry. How about some jerky? The Powhatan fattened Spanish hogs on peanuts and hung them to cure over smoldering hickory fires. Virginia hams. Bayou country homers thickened soup with ground sassafras. Gumbo. And the Algonquin slow-cooked beans with maple syrup, wild mustard seed, and earthen fire pits. Have some Boston baked beans. Native people in the Americas carefully nourished and bred more than half of the world's favorite foods. The clever cooks combined tastes and textures, producing delicious, nutritious meals that form the backbone of our most popular regional cuisines. But for the Native American, food was more than simple nourishment. It was sacred. You know, my partners at the hotel, the people of Picaris, through their White Buffalo Corporation, are involved in returning the buffalo, genus bison, bison, to the people. I work with buffalo meat, such an amazing, amazing meat. I love this. The bison meat is lower in fat and cholesterol than even the white breast meat of turkey. This animal was the provider of more than just food for many, many tribes. Uh, shelter, tools, clothing. We work very closely with the Intertribal Bison Cooperative, a group of tribes involved with not only the return of the buffalo for food and, and cultural reasons, uh, but for the good of the land, to restore the tall grass prairies uh, and the other lands ravaged uh, by the overgrazing of, of domestic livestock. You know, I envisioned how many of my own family uh, tipped the scales at 200 plus pounds and how many have walked on thanks to the white man's diet. Uh, the commodities program after so many of the tribes were relocated from their homelands. Now this brings me to an article by Ron Cohen written some years back uh, for Science News and it addresses this, this alarming rate of, of diabetes among the people. You know summer comes early to the Sonoran Desert Parched earth crunches underfoot and arroyos run dry, except for the occasional cluster of thorny agave plants and the towering saguaro cactus that pierce the hillsides. The ochre landscape seems lifeless. But when the July rains finally begin to beat down, the desert reawakens to release its hidden bounty. Edible sprouts of bloodroot amaranth shed their seed coats, coloring the earth with a carpet of green. The fruits of the prickly pear cactus blush purple with ripeness, and the Pima and Papago tribes prepare for another desert harvest. For centuries, these and other Native Americans adapted their lives, and some researchers say their bodies, to the feast and famine cycle of their desert homeland. 
by gorging on prickly pears, tepary beans, wolfberries, mesquite pods, mustard seeds. They managed to consume enough fuel to sustain them through the times of drought. Indeed, written accounts from the turn of the century indicate the Sonoran tribes enjoyed remarkably good health. But around 1940, however, you know, diabetes struck the Pima Indians of southern Arizona and never left. And not just those tribes. It is really rampant among the Native American people. Since 1970, the incidence of type 2 diabetes has jumped about 40% among the Pimas 35 and older. This adult onset disease today afflicts about half of all Pimas over 35, the highest known incident of diabetes in the world. And among several other Native American tribes, the rate lags only slightly behind. Though the Pimas still gather some plants and wild game from the desert, they've largely shifted to a modern Caucasian diet. A year-round regimen of saturated fats and junk foods apparently contributes to the tribe's rampant obesity, another known risk factor for diabetes. Arizona ethnobotanist uh, Gary Paul Nabhan has been scrutinizing the ancestral diets for a practical solution to the Piman plight. Working uh, with the Tucson-based Native Seed Search, an organization dedicated to preserving plants, he's begun to examine how the desert cuisine may have protected these and other Native Americans from diabetes in the past. A return to that diet suggests, you know, will really help combat the problem in the future. Napa and his colleagues selected six of the starchy foods traditionally eaten by the Pimas, mesquite pods, uh, acorns, white and yellow tepary beans, lima beans, and a strain of corn long cultivated by the tribe. And they cooked this up, and they fed these foods to eight healthy non-diabetic Caucasians. And they found that the experimental meal slowed the carbohydrate digestion and significantly lowered insulin production and blood sugar levels after mealtime. And that compared with meals incorporating conventional starches, you know, such as bread and potatoes. The research conducted at the Phoenix Indian Hospital appears to support this assertion. Now, Gary Nabhan said uh, the old way may still offer the most effective seeds of protection for the diabetic prones of the Sonoran and Native American people everywhere. The prickly pear cacti still bear fruit. The tepary bean still thrives. And the traditional farming and food gathering methods have not yet died out. The Native American agricultural legacy is more than a few hearty, tasty foods waiting to be cleaned up genetically for consumers and then commercialized as novelty foods. These nutritious crops deserve to be revived as mainstays of human diets and not just treated as passing curiosities. For my people, there is a reverence for the gifts of Mother Earth. The spirits of plants and animals are honored in song and ceremony. Ritual accompanies planting. Even a simple meal is preceded by prayer and an offering to the Great Spirit. We must all learn to cherish these bountiful lands as did the original people. We must dare to love and we must dare to dream. McGwitch. That's the voice of food historian and chef Loretta Barrett-Odin speaking in 2006 at the Bioneers Conference. Winona LaDuke is an enrolled member of the Mississippi Band of the Anishinaabeg. 
As program director of Honor the Earth Fund, she works on a national level to advocate, raise public support, and create funding for frontline Native environmental groups. She also works as founding director for White Earth Land Recovery Project. In 1994, Winona was nominated by Time magazine as one of America's 50 most promising leaders under 40 years of age. In 1998, Miss Magazine named her Woman of the Year for her work with Honor the Earth, and she has been awarded several awards, a graduate of Harvard and Antioch Universities. Winona has written extensively on Native American and environmental issues. Her articles have appeared in several magazines and anthologies. She has authored the books Last Woman Standing, All Our Relations, and Recovering the Sacred. Here she is speaking earlier this month at the San Francisco Green Festival. Ani nindo e magnetak nikagagitamagas bine sikwae de go makwa indo dem kawababani kagish kanigining and dunjibamigwich So I'm uh, greeting you in Ojibwe which I guess you might have gathered I like to talk about indigenous thinking about where it is we are going and where it is we are and I'll tell you that we have a prophecy they call that the prophecy of the seventh fire and we Anishinaabe people we had these prophets who came to us about a thousand years ago. I guess that's why they call it a prophecy. And uh, they came to us and uh, they talked to us about what was going to happen. And they talked about how uh, we would botch things up ourselves. And I always like to say that because no society has a monopoly on botching things up. You know, we all do it because we're human. The question is, if we have the humility, if we have the commitment, if we have the courage to fix things that we botch up. And they talked about how some people would come and some would be good and some would be not good. And that is true. You know, people who came and you all know that. And then they talked about a lot of our people would disappear. We didn't have a word for smallpox. We, it wasn't in our construct, our knowledge base. And they talked about uh, that we'd have a, a lot of our things would disappear. And they didn't have a word for the uh, uh, University of California at Berkeley Anthropology Department. Or the Smithsonian. <laughs> or the Peabody or the Herd Museum. We didn't have a word for the collectors who hauled off entire villages and the people. I think there's like 12,000 remains still over Berkeley, from what I gather. And I'm not really sure why Berkeley still needs to keep the ancestors. I'm really not clear. I'm not, I don't understand that accoutrements of empire, is what I would call it, where you imprison the ancestors. I'm not sure. But it is true across this country. But we didn't have a word for those guys. And then we didn't have a word for the time when they talked about our people would kind of go to sleep, which was when uh, the boarding schools era, talking about when they moved all our people into residential schools where they were intended to reprogram us and forbid us for speaking our languages, and a lot of us were very heavily abused, sexually, physically, emotionally. And then they talked about how uh, this time of the sixth fire is where I got to about now, which they said that these people would come and they would remember who they were. So they said they would remember who they were and they would go back and they would find their things that were missing. They would remember their languages. They would remember their songs would come back to them. And you, a lot of you are old enough to remember the rebirth. Some of that was out here at Alcatraz, where you saw the Renaissance, American Indian movement, you know, in the indigenous communities. You know, that was here too. But that is who those people were that they were talking about, those people who remembered. After all that, to remember. You know, to remember is a remarkable thing. To have that in your DNA, in your blood, in your heart, that somehow you know you are not the person that they told you that you were. You know, that you are somebody who is this person, who has this spirit, who has this life, who is this, you know. And so they call those people the Ashki Anishinaabeg, the new people. 
And they said that those people then would come to this time, which they call the time of the seventh fire. And in that time, they would have two choices, two mikana ahead of them. And one path, they say, is well-worn, but it is scorched. That's what they said about our people. One path would be well-worn, but it would be scorched. The other path would not be well-worn, and it would be green. And it would be our choice upon which path to embark. That's what those prophets said to our people about a thousand years ago. And I tell you that because that's written in our birchbark scrolls and in our oral history. And I know that that is true. And I know that uh, that is where we are as Anishinaabeg people. But I think that that is where we are in America. This choice of where it is we are going to go. In our thinking about how you make a sustainable society, we have some history in this idea. I'll tell you that in my own community, Anishinaabeg, which is what I know perhaps best, we have this teaching, which I think is the essence of sustainability, which is Gichi Tibwewen, which means the great law or the creator's law. And what we say is that the creator's law is the highest law, higher than the laws made by nations, states, or municipalities. And one would do well to live in accordance with the creator's law. And what does that mean? It means that we have teachings like Nindaway Muganaduk, which means we are all related. That is a part of the creator's law like every one of us in here, which I know really bummed out the white supremacists. <laughs> We're like 99.9% the same, right? But we are related to everything else. We call in our, in our language, we call them our relatives, whether they have wings or fins or roots. They are called our relatives too. In our experience, this society doesn't live on the creator's law. It lives on man's laws. Man's laws are perceived to be higher than the laws of nature. And so we trade pollution credits. We change the recommended daily allowances of contaminants according to who is in power and how much lobbying money they put in. That's what we do with no relationship to the world. Or a perfect example is genetic engineering. No idea what they're doing. But some idea that man is so darn clever, it's all going to be okay. That's an example of somehow we are so stuck in our anthropocentric way that we believe that we are smarter than the natural world. We could do all that. And that we aren't going to have to count for it in the end. We are all about the utilitarian value of everything until it's not even there. You know, factory trawling in the oceans is a perfect example. The over-harvesting of everything. And then we ship everything, all our tech, toxic chemicals we can't use here to someplace else, and they come back in our bananas. That's the, you know, somehow disconnect, right? Instead of having a cyclical system, we have an entirely linear system. Exemplified by perhaps two things the best. One would be the economy, which is linear. A perfect example of that is that you have you create a lot of stuff that ends up as garbage. And that is one of the largest growth industries in the country is waste management, which is an example of a linear, not a cyclical economy. So what do we do? 50 trillion pounds of waste a year, not including wastewater. And that's what we created. You know, if you want a big growth industry, have a dump. And we should not have growth industries based on that kind of a linear economy. You know? So in the privilege of my life, I work in my own community, and then I work nationally in indigenous communities around the country and somewhat around the world. We're helping these Indians out on Pine Ridge who are fighting this uranium mine, and, and uh, they say, the largest uranium mine in the country is out there right by the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. It's in Nebraska, Crow Butte. When I find out they're applying for a water permit to double the size of their mine, and uh, then there's all these uranium companies because of this this, what we just call a lie, that nuclear power is the answer to global climate destabilization. Because if nuclear power is the answer, what was the question? That's what someone has to ask, right? 
was the question, how do you keep your power system centralized and in the hands of really wealthy, inefficient people? Is that your question? How do you increase the amount of radiation exposure of everybody? Increase the amount of nuclear weapons access? How do you prolong a really bad plan from the last century into this one? If that was the question, then your answer is nuclear power. If you want to deal with global climate destabilization, there's a way better plan than that. But in this fantasy, they've been trying to reboot, and they got that $25 billion on the last energy bill, and they're going to go in on this, on this next climate change bill. In the meantime, the price of uranium quadrupled, and they moved back in Indian communities, because we happen to have two-thirds of the uranium under our lands, which is why I'm intimately familiar with the impact of uranium mining. So these Indians are fighting this. There's like 200 uranium leases or exploration holes around them, and then there's this expansion. And this one woman, her name's Deborah White Plume. I ask her how it's going out there, and she says, you know what we call this? She says, we call this a crazy horse moment. Because what she meant is she said, you look out there, you figure out who your allies are, you figure out who the enemy is, you figure out what the terrain looks like in terms of where you are exactly, politically, economically, physically, geographically, in terms of your stamina. And then you say, we're going to go for a fight or not. And they're saying, we're going for a fight. You know, we're not going to let them do it. Crazy horse moment. And I like that. You know, and that was the moment before the Battle of the Little Bighorn, just in case you're not sure of the moment I'm talking about. You know, these people are out there, and they got 13 plaintiffs suing this company at the NRC. I'm just telling you this because that is the reboot of the uranium industry in this country, and that's who's on our side. And you know who's on the other. So that's, that's how tough these people are. They're not going to cave. In terms of peak oil, you know, we're, um, we're looking at reducing everything in our community, relocalizing a lot. Our energy economy, to start with, you know, we're looking at fuel mostly. We're looking at uh, fuel poverty and the fact that most of our people are really affected by that. Because so, it's so cold. And so we're... We've got solar heating panels on the south side of our houses, and we're going back to our wood stoves because wood is a local fuel. I know you guys can't all do this, but I'm just saying we could do that. And then we rock with our wild rice. I don't want to say two sticks in a canoe. Got that? Grows on a lake, not in a paddy, no combine. Keep your ecosystem good, and you can harvest wild rice. Apane, forever. That's what we do. So we work to keep our rice from getting genetically engineered because that would be a mess. But more than that, we're working to keep the rest of GMOs out of our area. And uh, it turns out we, we raise these real old kinds of corn, real heritage seeds. And a lot of you are onto this, but those seeds, not are, only are they higher in nutritional value than anything you can buy at the store, but besides that, they are pre-fossil fuels. They aren't addicted to a petroleum economy. And they're also frost-resistant and drought-resistant because our guys didn't have those irrigation systems. And they're microclimate-adapted. So when your climate shifts, if you're growing those foods, you've got a much better chance of eating than trying to import something for 1,546 miles. Right? So that's what we're doing. We've got a farm-to-school program on our reservation. First tribal farm-to-school program in our region. I think it's one of the first in the country. <clears throat> That's because most of our kids are on this federal school lunch program. 99% of them qualify. When I went in there and they were, had all this nasty food and they were heating it and pouring corn syrup on it. And I, we have a third of our people with diabetes, the rest of them with ADHD. So I was like, let's get real. You want to pay those bills or you want to eat? That's what we did. And then we uh, just decided to go organic. You know, that's what we're working on. 
I know you're all here on this, but I, t- I always tell our story because first, my theory is if we could do it, anybody could do it. Because we're determined and we, we got that. In the broad context and in closing, you know, what I want to say is, is that our idea is a small picture, but uh, the implications for change are, are there. We have this need to do this 185,000 megawatts. And that could be here. That could be anywhere. That's the next economy. And the green economy has justice built in it. That's what our old people said. You know, you got a shot with that one. Of, of having people who are not in jail but have jobs. <clears throat> you have a shot at, if we just transform agriculture in California let alone the rest of the world. And they're saying that agriculture contributes 40% of CO2 emissions between the burning of the rainforest, right? The transportation of the food and the oil and petrochemicals slathered on. There's nothing that big. Eliminate coal, go organic, you know, and don't go nuclear. You know, that's what we got to do. And can you afford it? Yeah. You all know. We're spending $100 billion a year on a war. Lester Brown from uh, World Watch Institute, he's one smart guy at Plan B2. He talks about you put $100 billion a year for the next 10 years, you just transform the whole world. It's a question of which path you want. So to us, this genius of Wabandaming, this future, that's made not by some social change theory or by hoping someone's going to save us. So no one's going to save us. It's us. Put your hearts and your prayers and your minds together and work. And that's how we make this future. Miigwech, meet you. Thank you very much for your time. That's the voice of Native American author and activist Winona LaDuke speaking at the Green Festival earlier this month. You've been listening to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Many thanks to 